Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Business of Empathy. I'm Samantha Watkins. And I'm Solomon Livschitz. And today we're going to be talking about what is empathy? So, Sam, what is empathy? So, empathy is a neurological process. It's not an emotion as some people think. It's something that comes from emotions and results in emotions, but it's actually a series of activities that occur within the brain. Okay. So, like, more like a skill than like a, uh, than like a feeling? Absolutely. Empathy is a skill, and it can be practiced, and it can be improved. Nobody's born perfect at empathy, and you don't have a finite amount of it. It's not like I can only ever be so empathetic. You can always grow in that regard. Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So you could be like essentially like a marathon empathist or like, you know, out of shape and barely able to follow along. Exactly. Um, It's really interesting, actually. So studies have found that children as early as two are able to express empathy. Uh, The way they test that is they give children broccoli and goldfish crackers, and they ask the children to pick their favorite, and it is always the goldfish crackers, and then they ask them to choose one for the researcher. And until the child is two, they will give them the goldfish crackers because that's their favorite. But something that they'll do in this experiment is they'll have the researcher show that they really like broccoli. Like They only eat broccoli, they hold up the broccoli, and they say, oh, yum, I love this. And they give it to the kids. And the kid under two will be like, "Mm, that doesn't make sense, you want goldfish. But a child two or older will go, okay, well, you said you like broccoli, so that's your business, and give you the broccoli. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. So it's something that comes to us pretty early. Um, And it's really interesting because some people might hear that and think, then why do I know 40-year-olds who have no empathy whatsoever? And it's because it's a social skill. If it's taught out of you, if you're raised in a way that discourages empathetic behavior, then you're not gonna be the most empathetic adult. But even if you were raised in that way, you can learn it later in life because you always have that inborn ability. Sure, like you can always start training and running, for example. Yeah, like supposing you can walk, you can later learn to run, even if you never ran as a child. Mm -hmm. Supposing you have the mental capacity for empathy, and there are neurodivergent people who don't, but the neurotypical brain and many, many neurodivergent brains do have that capacity. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you have what is required, you can learn it later. So just to quickly backtrack on something you said, so if uh, children as early as two um, are capable of empathy, is there any research or studies that ask if it's sort of a genet- if there's a genetic component to it? You know, I don't know. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'll admit, I don't know why. Um, So the assumption is that over the many years that humanity has existed, it has developed with us. So evolutionarily, each generation, we pick more empathetic people to mate with, and therefore our offspring would be more empathetic. Now, is that because they have stronger genes that facilitate empathy, which would mean do they have more active mirror neurons, the details of which we will get into later? Or is it because socially they would raise their offspring that way? I don't know. But this isn't really a topic. I'm I'm not an evolutionary empathist. (laughs) That's not my arena, so I can't really answer. Right. All right. 
Now, back to what you were saying before about uh, empathy being a skill that... Ah, yes. Empathy is a process. Uh, so something that people often confuse empathy with is sympathy. Right. I would think that they're basically synonymous. That is what a lot of people would think, and it's not entirely accurate. So it depends on your definition of empathy. If you define empathy as sympathy, yeah, they're going to be synonymous. But if you look deeper into empathy and how it works in the brain, it's actually a vastly different process. So in layman's terms, sympathy is where you recognize the other person's emotion, and then you have your own emotional responses in, in turn. Okay. So if you're really sad and I see you feeling sad, mm-hmm. my sympathetic response is, oh, I'm sorry he's so sad. Well, thank you. Yeah. But my empathetic response is to feel that sadness within myself. Okay. To have a parallel emotion. And then to go on from there. And I'll explain how that process works a little later on in the episode. But essentially, empathy requires the sharing of emotions, while sympathy just requires the observing of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also argue, and not everybody agrees on this, but I would argue that empathy also requires a conscious decision to take empathic action. So it's not enough to just feel your sadness and sit with it. Mm-hmm. I have to do something about it. So I guess you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but it seems like you might have like a different definition of what empathy is than... Uh, or, or what, uh, yeah, what empathy is than the average person or what, I guess, society would, we would think as, as empathy? So, than the average person, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. Everyone who researches empathy has a, def- a different definition. Okay. Uh, there is no agreed-upon definition. I mean, Oxford has one, Webster's has one, sure. But in research, every, not every study, but the majority of studies use different criteria to define empathy. Um, so the traditional view of empathy has two components. Okay. Affective empathy and cognitive empathy. So to define some terms, affective essentially means feelings. Mm-hmm. So affective empathy is that first stage where I see you're sad. Okay. And then I feel sad. So affective empathy is that first emotional response. Cognitive essentially means thinking. So cognitive empathy is the thoughts I have as a result of that feeling. Okay. So the traditional scientific view of empathy is that you feel something, and then I feel something parallel to what you're feeling, and then I think thoughts that are empathetic. Okay. But more modern researchers have actually found that there are additional components. So I rely heavily on the work of Jean Decadie and Karen Gerdes, okay. uh, who have vastly different definitions, and my definition is a synthesis of theirs. All right. Uh, so I guess you want to... What would you say are the core uh, tenets of each of their definitions? So, Gene Decadie, I mean, he has had a long and storied career. Uh, so his definition has changed over time, but his definition that I'd like to focus on is a four, four-part four definition. Uh, first, affective empathy. Experiencing the feeling of the other. Right, as you were saying earlier. As a, you, I, see, I see an emotion, I recreate, or I feel it as well. Exactly. Uh, But then he breaks down cognitive empathy into three component parts. All right. So first is self-awareness. The importance of self-awareness to empathy is that it prevents emotion contagion, which essentially refers to when somebody else's emotions take over you. It's almost like being infected, like, by disease. Like, that's the contagion analogy? Or is it... Yeah, I would say so. Um, A little less harsh, but it is really traumatic if you experience emotion contagion. Um, it would be atypical to experience full emotion contagion. Uh, that won't happen to a neurotypical person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
anything resembling emotion contagion, even partial emotion, emotion contagion, is incredibly uncomfortable because you feel out of control. Sure. Like for, like, if you would watch, like, a large, like, a movie that was incredibly sad or that you you maybe have, like, a job that lets you, makes you deal with a lot of sick people, for example, and that starts to weigh on you. Yeah, something like that. I, I think the movie example is a really good one. Okay. So if you've ever watched a movie and, like, Sophie's Choice. Mm-hmm. You empathize so greatly with Sophie. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to avoid it, but it's sad. It's real sad. And when she has to make her choice... You know what I'm going to say? You can spoil Sophie's choice. That movie's been around long <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, when she has to make her choice, is there a dry eye in the audience? No. And if you're somebody who identifies as an empath, somebody who really truly takes on the emotions of others, you're liable to feel emotion contagion in that situation because it is such an incredibly moving scene. And also because you have such a deep understanding of the context. And that is another component to empathy is understanding context. Uh, but I don't want to get too far into that right now. So anyways, Gene Decadie, his second component, or his second element, uh, the first component of cognitive empathy is self-awareness. Right. And that is the delineation between what you're feeling and what I'm feeling. I may be feeling what you're feeling, but it's my feeling. Okay. And it's knowing that it's mine and within me, and it is not not yours. Uh, the second element is mental flexibility. Mm-hmm. So the mind is an incredibly flexible thing. It can do many, many tricks. But when it comes to empathy... It requires some mental flexibility to be able to do the acrobatics of taking on someone else's perspective. Mm-hmm. So I have to bend and twist if I'm feeling happy and you're feeling sad to then experience that sadness on your behalf. That makes sense. And then the final component is um, regulatory processes, which is really dense and complicated and I don't want to go too far into, but essentially it means it's it's the stuff that it takes to prevent you from getting overwhelmed. Okay. So, overall, he says, cognitive empathy is made up of knowing what emotions are mine, being able to know what emotions are yours, and not being overwhelmed by it. Mm-hmm. And I think those are three critical skills, but I wouldn't count them as the definition of empathy. Though I do think they factor heavily into the process that is empathy. Okay. So, moving on to Karen Gerdes, right? she has a three-part definition. So, just to... Uh, summarize. So, decades is affective response, self awareness, self awareness, mental flexibility, and regulatory processes. Okay. So, Karen Gerdes has a three part definition that is much simpler. <laughs> um, so, she's actually fairly traditional in her definition. She starts with affective empathy. So, it's an affective response. Then, she has the cognitive processes stimulated by that response, not super different from the traditional view of cognitive empathy. But her third component I find truly fascinating and have co-opted into my definition, which is the conscious decision to take empathic action. Hmm. So like the do something step. Exactly. So I think that's where we really draw the line between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is passive. It's something that happens to you. It It's something that happens at you when you're the recipient. Mm-hmm. But empathy is an active process you can't just feel empathy you have to behave empathetically mm-hmm. um, so you have to like choose to do something exactly and this is where I want to bring compassion into the argument because people often conflate all these three things sympathy empathy and compassion right 
compassion doesn't require that you know the other person's emotion at all. Mm. So, for example, when your mom growing up would say, you better finish your plate because there are starving children in Africa, you weren't empathizing with those starving children because you couldn't feel what they were feeling. You made some assumptions, sure, but you can't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe you feel sympathy because you understand their context and you feel bad for them, but that's, that's not empathizing with them. And maybe you felt compassionate towards them because you understand the concept of starving and you understand the concept of children and you know that's bad and you wouldn't want it for yourself, but you're still not being empathetic because one, you're not feeling the emotions they're feeling and two, you're not doing anything about it. Okay. But so, more heavily vested in that first step, empathy does require that affective response. Right. Would it be fair to say that like empathy, uh, sympathy and compassion are three separate distinct areas or that empathy is kind of like the Venn diagram center part of uh, compassion and sympathy? So depending who you read, mm -hmm. any of these three terms could be considered the umbrella term for the other two. Okay. And I would argue that that is not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would say that these are three distinct paths uh, with completely different profiles. Okay. I would say drawing the distinction between sympathy and compassion is important because of the connotation. Sympathy is often brought up these days because of everything that's going on. Um, the white savior feels sympathy. They don't feel compassion. Mm -hmm. The white activist may feel compassion, but it truly takes an extra step for a white activist to empathize mm. with the black experience. Okay. So the, it's not just something that can happen automatically. Right. There's a level of effort. And there's, there's work that goes into it. Now, a compassionate act and an empathetic act might look very similar. But the neurological process behind it is entirely different. Okay. And I, I think that's where the distinction is. Now, if you're trying to decide, am I doing this out of a place of compassion or a place of empathy, as long as the thing you're doing is good... Does it really matter? <laughs> uh, now, if something's coming out of a place of sympathy, that's where it starts to matter. Okay. Because sympathetic action often does not take into account the perspective of the other. Mm-hmm. And... So that's uh, something that could go wrong? Yeah. Because if you're not factoring in what the other person wants, then you're not actually helping them. Okay. So that actually brings to mind a really great quote, forgive me, I don't remember who said it, but you know how everyone says, do unto others as you would like done unto yourself? Mm -hmm. That's not empathy. Okay. Empathy is do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. That makes sense. Yeah, there's an element of perspective taking and understanding the other person, because when you're just projecting yourself onto others, you're not being empathetic. Right. So. So I might want a steak, but if that person's vegan, that's that's not what they want to do. Exactly. If you find a starving man in the desert and he goes, oh, but I only keep halal, you're not going to give him a bacon cheeseburger. Right. <laughs> because even though that might have been what you dreamt about while you were wandering the desert, that's a different person. And Those, those were the years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think now might be a good time to talk about my definition of empathy. Yeah, it seems like you have a, a very uh, clear opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, has that come across? So my definition of empathy has four parts. So first, you've got the affective response. Everybody pretty much agrees with that. First, to experience empathy, I feel what you're feeling. Right. Second, and not a lot of people talk about this part, is emotion identification. Okay. So it's pretty much what it sounds like. 
It's so, identifying the emotion that you feel as a response to the emotion that you've identified the other person feeling. All right. So I see you being sad and I identify it as sad. Exactly. Because let's say, let's say you're crying. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Are they happy tears or are they sad tears? I would have to identify that before I can really feel what you're feeling. So before your brain can process that information, it's already having that affective response. Mm -hmm. That comes first. But I have to identify, am I having the right affective response? And I do this by looking at the context. So if you're smiling, those are happy tears. If you're frowning, those are probably sad tears. That sort of thing. Okay. So is that clear? Yeah. Okay. Emotion identification happens in a split second. It's not something you really dwell on. It's not a... It's not as conscious mm -hmm. as other things are. Okay. Um, but it is a skill. And it's something we're going to talk about later in the series about how to improve your emotion identification. Because if you're blundering on that step, you're going to blunder the whole process. <laughs> so would it be fair to say it's almost like a reflex? It is a reflex. Like you can sharpen a reflex, but you can't necessarily like create a reflex. Yeah. Like if you don't have peripheral vision, mm -hmm. it's hard to catch a ball. No, forgive me. If you don't have depth perception, it's hard to catch a ball. Right. But if you do have depth perception, you can catch a ball pretty easily. But you can get better at catching a ball. That's mm -hmm. why I'm not a baseball player. I'm not that good at it. But I can do it when I'm called to. Right. So emotion identification, just like catching a ball, if you're lacking the skills to, to have empathy, and some people do, like there are certain times types of neurodivergence that preempt empathy. But in most people's brains, neurodivergent or neurotypical, empathy is present. And as is emotion identification. We're pretty good at identifying the emotions of others. Okay. Uh, now there are huge groups of people who do not have that skill, who might learn it over time but don't naturally have it. Uh, but the average person does. Now something I'd like to bring up here is we're very much trained by our culture in that way. So, and I'll get into this in another episode, but essentially the Western idea is that there are universal emotions. Everybody feels sad, everybody feels happy. But modern research has disproven that idea. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as a universal emotion. Hmm. And now, does that mean not everybody feels sad? No, not necessarily, but there's nothing universal about the experience of sadness. So in Western cultures, we cry, we frown, but in some other cultures, people don't respond that way. Right. And so when you're practicing emotion identification within your in-group, that is within people who are like you, it's a lot easier than practicing it with an out-group, somebody who is very unlike you. Okay. Uh, and so part of that skill, if you're going to be working with people from an out-group, is building up an understanding of their emotional systems. But I, I think I've fully covered that topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so step three is cognitive response. That's your thinking response. And what's really cool about your cognitive response is it can be trained. Mm -hmm. It can also be innate. Okay. So. So like a natural gift at it versus like a like a practiced kind of work. Not quite. What I mean by that, sorry that that was unclear. The way you're raised is going to influence what your cognitive thoughts are. Sure. And your cognitive response, but you can learn new cognitive responses. So one example is I was raised in a culture that is very fat phobic. Mm -hmm. And so I, like many people, when I see someone who isn't conventionally attractive, I might think, oh, they shouldn't be wearing that. Mm -hmm. But that's just your initial response. You can teach yourself to have a secondary response and go, no, 
That's not true. People can wear whatever they want to wear. And it's not my place to judge. And honestly, who said the Western ideals of beauty are the ultimate ideals of beauty? Mm -hmm. To somebody, that person is the most beautiful person in the world. And I can teach myself that secondary thought. And the more I repeat it, the more I believe it, the more likely it is to become my primary response. Okay. So this is where we start bringing in conversations of prejudice and bias. So if you were raised in a culture that was really biased towards a certain outgroup, your initial response carries that bias. It doesn't make you a bad person or or anything like that. It just makes you a biased person. And we're all biased. Mm-hmm. We all have our prejudices because we were all raised sure. in a way, you know? Right. It's. I mean, another way to put it, a bias is just a preference. A bias is, is a preference. But like a deep ingrained kind of preference almost. Yeah. But it was definitely taught to you. Nobody's born biased. Right. And the great thing about things we are taught is we can unlearn them. Mm-hmm. So in this third step, cognitive response, if you're finding you're not happy with your cognitive responses, like, for example, I see you crying. If my initial cognitive response is, oh, he's a man, he shouldn't be crying, mm-hmm. I can unlearn that. I can say, no, all human beings get to cry. <laughs> there is nothing innate about having the male anatomy that prevents one from crying right? or makes one less of a man or whatever the case may be. So that, I think, sums up cognitive response. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fourth step, and I share this with Gerdes and not that many other people, <laughs> is the conscious decision to take empathic action. Right, that doing step. I would argue empathy is an active verb. It's not just a noun. It's not just a thing you have and hold on to. It's something you do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that action is the choice of inaction. So if you're crying, maybe my empathic action, my conscious decision to take empathic action is just listening, is just sitting and going, I'm so sorry, do you want to talk about it? And then I do nothing. I don't go avenge Mm -hmm. whatever has made you sad, but I'm there and I just sit. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I do go avenge (laughs) whatever has happened, what injustice has occurred. My ice cream cone was slapped out of my hands. Yeah. Now, do I go get you a new ice cream cone? Do I give you a shoulder to cry on? Do I go fight the guy who knocked Mm -hmm. it out of your hand? I have lots of options, and what empathic action I take is up to me. It's it's based on who I am as a person and what my values are. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even maybe just not doing anything at all and realizing that, you know, maybe this person just needs to cry alone and this is a moment for them. Exactly. Sometimes empathic action is inaction, Mm -hmm. but typically you're going to do something. Okay. I mean, you're always going to do something, even if it means leaving. Right. And just departing the situation because you know you're not going to be helpful. Now, later we're going to talk about how you know what empathic action to take because I I think that's why most people are listening to this podcast is they (laughs) want to be more empathetic or they want to learn more about empathy. Right. And a really critical step to that is how do you apply it. And I know today has been very... It's important, people. This is the <laughs> this is the foundations for everything. Yeah, today's important because if you don't know what empathy is, it's really hard to do. Sure. But I also understand that people probably want to know how to do it too. All right, and so yeah, for us to be practicing empathy, we need to know your definition. So to solidify that, it is uh, one affective response, right. two emotion identification, three cognitive response, and four conscious decision to take empathic action. All right. So yeah, that's my definition, and that's what we're going to be working with going forward. Uh, Whenever I talk about empathy, those are the four steps I'm referring to. 
All right. Well, I'm excited to keep talking with, uh, with you about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that's answered everybody's questions about what is empathy. Uh, so just to conclude, I would like to offer you some resources to learn more about these topics. First off, uh, I want to talk about the Center for Empathy Education, which is the organization that supports this podcast as a whole. If you go to their website, centerforempathyeducation.com, you'll see their blog where they have a lot of other free content about these topics. Um, also follow them on social media. Their Instagram, Twitter, and Medium are all at empathy underscore ed. And their Facebook and LinkedIn are at Center for Empathy Education. All of that information will be in the show notes as well. If you have any questions for me, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn, which will also be in the show notes, um, or send a message to the email associated with this podcast. And if you want to talk to me, I'm not really the focus of this, but ask Sam. <laughs> I'll put you in contact. <laughs> <laughs> so please, if you like this podcast, like and subscribe. And join us next time as we dive into the business of empathy.